Today's scripture comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Today's message is called The Qualities of an Elder, and I don't know, I'm not sure how, how, what you might think about this. This might seem, not seem like the most exciting topic in the world. Um, I hope you will actually find it of, of great interest, though. Um, and I want to start by, by saying this. Like Some of you are going like, well, I'm not going to be an elder, so um, I'm not sure, is this, how, how super relevant is this to me? I'm not even sure what an, exactly what an elder is. Um, and, of course, if you are a member of our church, certainly you should pay attention because we're asking you to take ownership because you take part, you're part of the movement of the Holy Spirit to raise up and discern who our elders are. It isn't just like, you know, we just let the people, quote unquote, know, just figure it all out. It's not passive like that. The whole body of Christ is called to help um, be led into that discernment and calling um, elders. But um, I want to start just making a comment before I, I, I get into this. Um, what we're looking for is a certain kind of man, right? We're looking for what, what I like to call the elder quality man. And um, as I unpacked these attributes of what an elder is like, you're going to see that an elder quality man is a pretty high quality man. <laughs> the standards are high. And they're very serious because we're talking about leadership not about a business or of anything political. We're talking about leadership of the most important organization and body there is, which is God's people, God's church. And, and so um, if you, you know, even if you're, you know, it's a little bit strange to you to be thinking about who can lead inside of a church. I hope you'll just be thinking about the kind of standard and the vision of leadership. I want to just think about what is the vision of leadership inside of church, inside of revived churches, the Bible's vision. And, and, and uh, I hope that some of you were thinking that even if you're like, I don't know if I'll ever be good enough to be an elder, let's say if you're a man, and, uh, but I hope that you will at least want to have the qualities, you be elder quality. Even if you don't become an elder, that you aspire to be an elder quality man. Um, I hope that... Um, if you are parents, you want your children, you want your boys to grow up, even if they don't become an elder inside the church, that they would be elder quality. That they would really, they would be the kind of man that people would willingly want to emulate and follow. Because that's what we're talking about here. We're not just talking about leadership where people know religious stuff and they wield power because they, that's how the rules work. That's kind of how our society works. Whoever's got the power, whoever's got the money, the legal rules say these guys have control, so I guess these guys or this woman has control, and we just have to kind of go along. But that's not how it works inside the church. In the church, the Holy Spirit leads us to raise up 
a very godly, very righteous, a very compelling type of leader that the people want to follow. That's, that's what's really, really important. They want to follow. They express a kind of humanity that people say, that, that's the kind of human being. I, I'm, not, I'm not as good as this kind of people. I want to be this kind of person. And so, um, so that's, that's, that's kind of the preface that I want to say. I want to say one more thing before I get into this. Um, some of you are thinking, like, I've been talking about an elder quality man, and you're, some of you are thinking, can, um, can a woman become an elder? Can a woman become an elder? This is a, uh, this is a controversial point <laughs> to get right into at the beginning of the message. And I'm going to give you the answer, and it's probably not going to be a popular answer. And we believe, and by the way, the majority, the vast majority of churches and denominations around the world and across history have this answer, and the answer is no. Right? Women are not called to be elders. And I know in this, that's like, Wow, that's, that's crazy. I know, especially in Silicon Valley, that's considered like an insane point. And um, because, and I'll get, I'll say a little something about that today when I get to a certain particular point. Um, but um, I'm not going to fully address that issue today. Um, today. And what I, what I will like to offer you is for some of you who may have questions about that, um, you know, we need to get on to other important subject matters in the Bible. Um, the next series that we're going to tackle is a huge, thorny profoundly important series on biblical justice. And we need to get to that series. And so for the sake of time and, you know, to give that, that topic, you know, really ample attention, I'm not going to address this thorny issue about, you know, women and, 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 and the eldership. What I'm going to offer you is um, I did address that in a, in a sermon a number of years ago, and I have that recording. And we will, um, we will, we will, we'll, uh, we'll add that to our YouTube list and then we'll make that available for all of you. So we're not trying to hide anything. Um, and this isn't like some, you know, chauvinistic thing where the men are going to... This is, it has, it has deep, under, um, deep teachings from the Bible. This is, we believe this is the scriptural view. And so, so with that really unpopular thing to say, um, that's the intro. Um, I hope you'll be really interested in what, it, what, um, what the elder quality leaders are, what it looks like according to the scripture. And so... Today, only two parts, okay? And part one is lengthy because I'm going to really go, try to go through all of these attributes of the elder. And part one is discerning the elder quality men. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go through all these different points. Um, and it's going to take some time. And I'm going to say, try to say a little something brief about all the different attributes that the Bible says the elder should be like, okay? Discerning elder quality men. And then I'm going to close by talking about the character of leadership Shaped by the cross. There's all of these qualities, even though maybe the gospel isn't explicitly being, being um, ex expounded here, it's always there. In the, in the Bible, the, the gospel is the center. And the person that the gospel proclaims, Jesus Christ, is always, always there. And I want to show you that this is about Christ-centered leadership. Okay? And that's what we're looking for in our church for sure. All right. Let's get into it. Um, all right, here's what the passage says. Um, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Verse 2, therefore an overseer, that's the same word, different words, overseer, sometimes it's translated bishop. Um, you know, some, some passages talk about the shepherd and some passages talk about the elder. We think that the right 
understanding of the Bibles, all those words are actually synonymous. You know, some denominations, a bishop is above the priest, right? Um, but we, we don't agree with that understanding of the Bible. We think that actually in, in the context, they're all synonymous. So overseer means elder, okay? An overseer, an elder must be above a reproach. And let's start there. That's the first one. Um, he must be above reproach. What does that mean? Um, well, you know, first of all, uh, I think it sounds like, wow, does that mean he has to be almost perfect? It sounds really like that, right? Our culture today, whenever we're talking about qualities of, you know, standards, I, I noticed that what people, we seem to not be able to have a reasonable, a high standard, which is reasonable and practical. That's, that's the thing I want to say. In our culture, um, we are really going through something really ugly in our time. There's a, it's tremendous distrust and cynicism. And I don't know if that's because of, of, of social media or what, but um, we like tearing people down. That's what we do. And um, there are people who are good leaders, and what we do is we look for the chink in their armor. We look for a flaw. And guess what? We'll always find one. There'll always be one. So when it says here in the Bible that um, the, the, the elder must be above reproach, we're not talking about perfection here, but we're, I think the practical reason, understand that it's not just some pure, like super standard that nobody can reach, you know, like, you know, religion that makes no sense in the world that's irrelevant. Okay, that, that's, this is a really practical book. And this teaching is intended to train the church and God's people from generation to generation. It does not matter which culture. So this standard, by the way, it doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're rich. It doesn't matter if you're white or black. This worked in the 15th century, the 12th century, the 17th century, certainly in the 21st century. So what does above reproach mean? It means that there is no immediately obvious you know, character flaw that makes him just impossible to follow. Just like, you just go, oh my, that, that, okay, oh gosh. And, um, you know, there's so many leaders today that, um, you know, for instance, you think he's a good person, and then you find out that this man um, regularly abused, uh, abused women that were under his power. And I won't say names, but famous people are coming out in the news where that's coming up. Um, and including one that was a really, really great Christian leader this past week. It was incredibly painful news, right? And I won't talk about specific names, but um, godless people and even Christian people. But that's an example. Where you, you find out about something that's just, that's, uh, who's, that's not a person who's above reproach. And who has... A, a profound sin or a character problem, especially with, in a way that would, we would fear that they could abuse power. So that's what um, above reproach means. Does that make sense? And um, so, um, so someone's always going to have a flaw. We're sinners. We're all sinners. The leaders are going to be sinners. And so I'm asking you as a church to, we're to not be like our society. What we seem to either have is to have, to have like a super perfect society of super legalism. It's very interesting. We live in a godless and relativistic age, but we seem to have like a super legalistic standard. You can't have ever said anything that seems remotely racist ever, ever, ever. And if we find that in your social media feed from like 15 years ago, you're going to lose your job. I'm sorry. 
That, that's not what we're talking about here. I, in fact, I could say incredibly unrealistic, and that's like a witch hunt, and that's not what we're talking about here. But we aren't talking about, is there some serious uh, moral failing, and it's just a part of the character that, um, that, we're, that would really damage the body, and um, that we can't allow this person to wield authority, especially over other people, especially vulnerable people. That's, that's one, okay? Uh, second, the husband of one wife. Let me say a little something about this. In the passage, it says literally, the man of one woman. That's how it puts. The man of one woman. And, um, you know, I think in maybe about 30 years ago, we said the husband of one wife, and there really didn't need to be much teaching on that, and the church would have just like, their eyes would have glazed over and said, okay, okay, let's just, can, we, can we just move on? We don't need to be talking. But today, it's actually tremendously important to, to talk about this. Um, and I want to just, just talk about some of these issues that are relevant today. We're becoming a very post-Christian culture. And in pagan societies all around the world and in history, um, just we'll give you an example. How about a polygamy? Uh, so according to this passage, if a man has multiple wives, he can't be an elder. And it's really interesting. In history, in the, in the biblical history, God seems to tolerate polygamy but it's explicitly taught in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. It was always intended that a man shall leave his father and mother and then be united to one woman. And that's, that's a very, I mean, we're not, you don't even have to get chapter 2 of the Bible. And there you go, boom, the understanding of what marriage is supposed to be is already in the Bible. So that's one. It's, it's a, the Bible seems to tolerate polygamy, but every person in the Bible who had multiple wives, you know, it always turns out bad for him. <laughs> every single one. And so it's very interesting why, not, one of these days I like to ask Jesus when we get to heaven, why, why didn't you just say no, not ever, but like he seems to tolerate at certain periods. But here, here in the standards, polygamy. Now you're, some, some of you are thinking like polygamy, that's not even, it's not even allowed in our society. Um, and one of the things I want to say to you is um, just wait. <laughs> just wait. There is, uh, there's nothing in our legal laws right now except for, I would just say, prejudice. Prejudice and tradition that doesn't allow a man to marry two or three or four women. How about a woman to marry two or three men? I mean, I, mean, I think there's nothing in our laws right now that don't allow that. And there are certain types of religious sects. They are pushing, they do believe in polygamy and they're pushing for it. And I think it's probably a matter of time because in the, legal, in, in the legal structures right now, there's, 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 we have zero arguments against it. We've already passed the point where a man can marry a man or a woman can marry a woman. And so why can't a man marry two men or a man marry two women? That's already where we're at. And so I want to be very clear about this. And so, of course, this also is the question about um, can a man be married to a man? And the Bible says no. All right? And the Bible is very clear about homosexuality. Our church, we do believe in biblical sexual ethics and that God made two genders, male and female. It's very explicit in the Bible. And that's what it says in the Greek, a man of one woman. Let me say a couple other things, um, um, more difficult points. I actually think the more difficult issue is the question of divorce. So what if a man was married and then he got divorced and then he got remarried 
So is he not a one-woman man, a man of one woman? I mean, isn't he, you know, technically the, the, a man of two women? And um, thus, is he disqualified from becoming you know, an elder? No. Um, and there are many denominations of churches. They just would read that, and they would just straight up just go, yep, that's it. You're divorced, got remarried, or even just got divorced, even didn't get remarried. Um, that's it. And um, I'd like to say this. Um, I think that's a reasonable standard. It's reasonable. And I'm going to say this later on because it, there's a qualifications about, one of the qualifications is about how well you, you lead your household, what your family is like. And so if there was divorce and, you know, you obviously failed at a really important place um, uh, morally in terms of your life, it's very unpopular today to talk about divorce as, uh, as moral failure, but come on, let's be real. It is, right? But, um, but I don't think that's, that's, that's quite the right best way to read this passage. I would, I would say that if you say the person was divorced, that's it, disqualified, I would say you're simply just applying law. And our church does not believe that the law of God is the final authority over the way we are ruled by Jesus. It is the gospel. The gospel completes law. We had a whole series. And the gospel is bigger and fulfills law. And the gospel has room for failure. The gospel has room that we failed even important things like our marriage. And so let me give you an example. Let's say there's a person who, before he got married, um, slept around with a lot of different women. He was hardly a one-woman man before he got married. And then he finally found the, the woman he liked and just was like, and then was enamored with her, married her, they never got divorced. That guy's qualified to be an elder? That's, that's kind of, that's difficult. But another person who, let's say, didn't sleep around before he got married, but then, you know, tragically, for whatever, various reasons, and there's a lot of different reasons for divorce, and, and some are biblically allowed, got divorced. But then, he grew, and then he, be, he grew as a Christian, and then in his second marriage, he became a really godly man that other men say, you know what? I really want to follow his example. I want to follow his, the way he thinks about parenting. I really want to follow the way he thinks about the Bible. I, I love the way he handles money and the way he influences other people. That person can't become an elder? The gospel has done a profound work of transformation in this person's life, and, and the gospel does, has won. Jesus has one in his life. Shouldn't we want that person to be an elder? And I would say yes. And so that's the way I want us to understand this passage. The standard is high, but we are always thinking about it in, in, the, in the perspective of the transformative power and of the effects of the gospel, not just purely as law. Are you hearing me here? So that's, that's what I mean, but, um, what I think is the right way to think about the husband of one wife. It goes on. Um, he's to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Let me take those at once. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Um, I think sober-minded means something like this. Um, I think many of you already know what it means, but let me, let me try to emphasize this. Sober-minded means not drunk-minded. How about that? Um, a sober person whose mind is sober has clarity. They're, they're, they're not drunk and like covered up. When you take in too much alcohol, you're, 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 you can't think straight. You can't see straight. That's what's illegal to drive, right? But you know that alcohol is not the only way for your mind to become inebriated and clouded. 
There are, there are people who are not sober-minded because they're so overly emotional that they, 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 they can never be sober-minded. There, there are some people who are not sober-minded because they're drunk with anger. <laughs> or they're drunk with, um, you know, they're, they're, the, they're the guy who, you know, as soon as they're in love, it's kind of like their mind is like, yeah, that's it. They're, 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 they're not sober because they can't think straight about life because they're in love. That's a tough one, I know. Or, and of course, there are some people who are never sober-minded about money. <laughs> or they're not sober-minded about because they had a bad father. So they have a bad attitude toward their father. Okay? So can, can a person think clearly and straight, fair-mindedly, objectively? Um, how about self-controlled? Self-controlled is, um, this is also related. Self-controlled is, there's so many different ways that we, go, we, we can't control. A person can't control their tongue. A person can't control their emotions. A person can't control their appetites. And so, um, you know, they, they, they got to have this. They got to have this. They got to have this. And that, that's not a good sign. We want to see a person who, if you can master your body and you can master emotions, and nobody can truly fully master it. We all kind of fall down at times. But in general, again, more or less above reproach in self-control. And how about respectable? Respectable, I think, is actually one of the easiest. It is they are able to be respected. <laughs> respectable means that you meet them, you get to know them, and you know what you do? You, you respect them. <laughs> you want to respect them. One of the first things we want all the, those who lead, and so, you know, elders, I mean, if, and elders are both pastors or the teaching elders. They're the ones who have the special calling to expound the Bible and then to handle the sacraments. And then we, we call them the ruling elders, but all of the ruling elders, they're the lay elders. But both those elders, you know what you want, we want to do? We, we look at them and say, the way they think, the way they act, the way they talk, the way they look at life, the way they treat other people. It doesn't mean you always 100% agree, you know, but what you do is it evokes respect. Um, one of the things I would like to think is, how about this, just practical? Um, I've long thought that uh, if, if I had, you know, I'm, I'm a father. And if my children meet an elder, you know what I want them to do? I want them to immediately go, not respect him simply because he has the title. <laughs> Who wants to respect just an office? Um, you know, you meet the CEO of a company. They have title and power. Should we respect them? Hopefully, but what, we, what I merely want we to see is that you meet a person, you get the quality of their humanity, and you know what we get? It draws, it draws and evokes respect. It makes a person say, oh, oh this, person, this, is a, this, is, this is a person with weight. Next, um, hospitable. That's an interesting quality. Um, he must be, let me, let me get this right. He must be sober-minded, self-controlled, and then hospitable. Why is that important? Um, you know, today, uh, especially, we, we live in an incredibly lonely culture. People come from literally all around the world. And um, it's hard to build community. The person who is the elder is a person who is the one who draws community, who draws people together into a new kind of family. If, you, if they never invite anybody to their house, that, that's a strange, that's not a person that could be very good at that. And so... A person should be, hospi I mean, the, the art of hospitality, in a, in a, it's a lonely world. It's a fearful world. And it's a fearful and lonely city, especially you live in. 
One of the ways that we begin to break that down is a person says, welcome, the heart of welcome, come into my house. And so this means that it's not just the man. I mean, often like his wife has to have that heart too, because if the man wants to invite people over, his wife doesn't, then that's not going to work, right? Or it also includes that they have to often have a buy-in from their children. And so, and then that means they have to prepare. If you go to somebody's house, they probably will... Uh, you know, scrub the toilet at least and, and maybe dust off the counter before you come. And so they have a heart of welcome. And you know what? This is the house of God. The leaders of the church need to have that heart of hospitality too. Because there's going to be people who are in, really in need of welcome, lonely, broken souls. And let me say something more about this too. Hospitality, it isn't just that external behavior of being welcoming hospital. You know what we also need? We need men with hospitable hearts. Their hearts have a, have a heart of welcome. So that they don't just invite you into their house, they invite you into their life. And when they invite you into their life, they invite you into the honesty of their life. They don't just scrub and clean everything up. Um, I, I, I love it when I go to somebody's house and it's not perfect, actually. <laughs> um, because they're willing to say, you can, you can see my house. And you know what? We, that's a, something we also need because nobody can scrub up everything. Indeed, we all have sin and some dark weaknesses. And you know who can only really clean that? It's Jesus. And the man who really knows that it's Jesus who covers up those things, but then will still welcome you into their heart, into their life. They'll invite you into their weakness, into their vulnerability. That's a person who we want. That's a person who gets the gospel. So hospitable, even into their heart. Okay, let's, let's move on. Able to teach. I actually think this is a relatively easy one, but it's tremendously important. We'll just give it some emphasis here. What is one of the most important things the, the, the elder must do? He must be able to offer people the gospel, lead people into the central mystery of godliness, which is to know Jesus Christ through the gospel. So teaching doesn't necessarily mean like, like the pastor. It doesn't mean he has to be able to preach. But he should have some fundamental grasp of the mysteries of the gospel. He knows what's gospel, what's law. That thing I just told you. What is gospel? What's law? He shouldn't just be mere legalistic. Because if he says something, goes, hey, you know, elder, I, I have this. And he just, just hands you a flat legalism. I'm sorry, that's not good teaching. <laughs> We want someone who can teach in example, good in, in encouragement, in rebuke. Maybe it could be a one-on-one -on -one setting. It could be in a small group setting. It could just be um, the elder sees, you know, somebody shows up in the church and the wife looks sad and depressed. Or you see a couple and, uh, you, know, they, you know, he sits over there and she sits over there and they have bad, bad body language. But he knows how to gently say a word and maybe speak into the husband's life and teach. Teach. You see what I'm saying? So this is what we're talking about. And this is really, really important here because the most important thing, we're not talking about somebody to wield power. We are not asking elders to be a board of directors that, that fundamentally wields power. You know what we're looking for? People who proclaim the gospel and that will teach not just with words and with expertise, so to speak, but with their lives. With their lives. Um, verse 3, not a drunkard. Not a drunkard. Um, I think this is the all-purpose category of uh, 
not, not addictions. So back then, that was, that was probably, you know, and of course through all, all of history, and, and um, alcohol is one of the most favorite abused, uh, um, uh, abused substances today. I think it's actually caffeine, <laughs> right? Um, so that might be the most abused substance today, but there's a lot of ways to be addicted. Um, how about addicted to video games? How about addicted to work? There are people, this, I know this sounds strange, a drunk to work. <laughs> so if a person who is drunk on success and always works, 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 how is he going to have time to shepherd God's people in their hurts, in their loneliness? But certainly not alcohol, um, drugs, whether they're, maybe they're legal, even legal drugs. There's opioid painkillers. There's lots of addictions to that today. Um, and if, certainly, of course, the illegal drugs because that's breaking the law. And, uh, and the church is called to submit to God's laws insofar as they're not wicked against God. Right? Um, not violent, but gentle. Not violent, but gentle. That seems really obvious, but I want to I um, say a little something about this. Um, if you go around our culture and just, just generally observe uh, it's, men have a tendency toward violence. Men are physically stronger than women in general. And uh, the last thing we want is someone who wreaks fear through violence. But men like violence. Um, the most popular sport in America is football. And guess what? I like football. <laughs> and guess what? I like the violence too. And so uh, we like violence. Men like violence sometimes when you have fights. Um, and guess what? Inside of church there's conflicts and there's fights. And, um, you know, women might slash each other with words, but men sometimes like to pull out their fists. When you get a man angry enough, he might get violent. And that's the last thing that we need inside of our church. And sometimes the stress and division inside of a church, and I've seen it. I have heard of incidents where elders get so angry at each other that fist fights have broken out. And, um, you know, there's no way to ever, <laughs> there's no way to absolutely guarantee that won't happen, but one of the first things we're looking for is we, 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 we don't want a man who's oriented toward violence. He, he has self-control of his temper. How about that? And, and not violent, but gentle. Um, gentleness, this is, I, I'm, I'm actually, whenever I, I'm tremendously convicted, I'm, I'm actually not the most, I'm kind of more like your dude's dude, and um, I'm not always the most gentle person. But I, tr I really try, and I do believe that I'm grown some in gentleness. But what's really, really important about gentleness is, is this, is um, people come into the church, and they're wounded. And they come in, and they don't necessarily agree with everything that's in the Bible. And some of it's offensive to them. And they might want to argue against the leadership. Or they might even tell you, you're a jerk for believing in this. Can you respond with gentleness? You, a person will come in and they look all well put together, but you don't know if they've been abused for years and years and years by their father or beaten by their wife or a man who's come in who's, whose wife cheated on him and really just destroyed him from the inside. And those people who shepherd them, oh, they need to be ever so gentle. They have to have gentleness for the most profound hurts. This is life. And, and, and another really, really important place for gentleness is um, our church 
there we, were, we deeply believed that the gospel must cross generations. We believed, in the, we believed that the gospel must go to the children. So we do not believe that just because you're older or you make more money or you're, you, know, you, you, know, you have more power that we're only going to pay attention to you. In our church, we really pay attention to the little ones. There's no way the little ones, as babysitting in our church, the little ones are tre- tremendously treasured because they're going to they're, they're be children of God and they're going to grow up to be the leaders and potential future elder quality men of the world and of the church. And children need gentleness. Children need gentleness. And let me just say it this way. You have no idea if a child's going to come in and they ask a question about, you know, they ask a question about God and um, you just think, they're supposed to be a Christian, don't they, don't they already know what all the right answers? Maybe they don't. And what if they're getting beaten and abused at school or by their friends or by one of their parents on a regular basis? Uh, the shepherds of the church need to be very, very gentle for the children. Um, not quarrelsome. Okay, here's the main thing I want to say about that. There are some people who like to argue. Um, I hope I'm not considered one of them. I used to be very, I, I love debate and I love winning debates when I was a young man. But over time, I've learned that just some, some debates are, are just stupid. It's just like whoever wins still loses. And we need, we need leaders who know the difference. We need to know the difference. Inside of the leadership, if there's always somebody who is Taking, making small things, big things, and then starting, you know, fights. That, trust me, that, that is an unbelievable pain in the butt person. But if that person has the power of the eldership, and now that person can split the church. We need to know who knows what are the most, the main things, the main things in the scripture. They know this is of the gospel. We have to have a fight over this. We can't let this go. I don't care if this, we have to, if this has to split the church, this is so important we must fight over this. And this is, this is a secondary matter. And so you have to know what's secondary matter inside of, of the Bible. You have to know the things like, you know, that person is just a loud voice, but sorry, that's not the most important thing and we're not going to fight over that. It's not even has anything to do with the Bible. It's like this person's angry about the, the color of the paint in the church. Okay? We, we shouldn't have quarrels over these things, especially that can divide our people. Not a lover of money. Not a lover of money. Um, this has never happened in our church, and I hope it never happens in our church. But um, people steal from the church. It's a, it's, a, it's a pretty regular thing. And then, of course, leaders come up, and they have an important name, and they have an important title. And there's a lot of churches, and I won't say, but the, who, the, the man who comes up the front, they use their authority and their name and their title to exploit and, and take money from people. So we don't want a person who loves money. We certainly don't want a person who loves power. And we don't want a person who loves power to get money. (laughs) You know what we want? We want a person who loves Jesus. Who loves the cross. Who loves forgiveness. Who loves mercy and grace. Gentleness. Who loves the people so that he can shepherd the people to the chief shepherd, Jesus. And so just a couple practical things about this. If you see a person and they dress nicely, um, please don't immediately judge them. That doesn't mean they're a lover of money. Um, there are a lot of successful people in our county. 
And you don't know if they're a lover of money. You kind of have to get to know them if they're a lover of money. I think there are people who have very nice things. And when I get to know them, they're actually not a lover of money. <laughs> they're really generous with their things. And, you know, like, just think about this. If a person makes a million dollars, they could actually have four cars. And actually not, because it's actually easy for them. And they could be generous with their cars. They could do all kinds of interesting things. But in our county, there's a lot of people that make crazy amounts of money, actually. But there are people who are relatively poor, and they are lovers of money. <laughs> they never had a whole lot of money, so they're hoard, they hoard, they hoard. They're never generous. So let me just offer that as a, how do you know if a person isn't a lover of money? Because they're generous with their, their goods and their money. I think that's kind of like, that's the one we want to see. They're not a lover of money. They're generous with their treasure and their money, okay? All right. I know this is getting a little bit long, so let's... let's not a... Um, um, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so, brothers and sisters, this is the name of the series, The Household of God. So... The household is your family plus the structure of it. You understand? There's your family, but then there's the household. The household is your family plus the structure of it. And so here's, if, 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 he's a, if he is a father, does he manage his household well? By the way, you don't have to be married in order to become an elder. Um, some of the best elders in history were like, say, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is a great shepherd. And he wasn't married. I mean, he wasn't married in terms of marrying a woman, but he is ultimately, according to the, um, according to the, um, the gospel, he ultimately is wedded to the church. And of course, he's a great husband to the church. And he is a great shepherd, even though he's, a sh he's like a spiritual father. So what is this saying? Is like, can you father other people, whether it's spiritually, and of course, if you're a father, you know, you're a biological father. And Paul was a, spirit, a great spiritual father, but he, was, he never got married. And so you can look at a single person and just wonder, how does he run his household? That's, that's actually interesting to, to see too. That's something to consider. But in the, in the obvious cases is this. Does a man, is he a good father? And here's a really important part of being an elder. You're not a board member. You're not a governor. You're not a CEO. You know what you are? You're a father. You're a father for the most important family, God's family. So you lead, you shepherd, you love, you care, you protect. And you do so in such a way that those whom you care for, they love you, they honor you, they want to submit to you. They want to submit to you, okay? Now let me get back to this question, this. Um, please, again, don't, let's, let's not go into like maximal super legalism. Check out, you start thinking about every man in the church and you're like, oh, he's got that one kid and he's kind of disobedient. Okay, that's it. You know, just check him off. That, that, again, that's back to like super like secular, like pharisaical legalism that we got in our church. Sometimes there are really good parents, but I mean, it's sad to say this, but there's always kind of like that wayward child. You know, what the, the odds are if you have three children, one of them's going to be dumb. <laughs> okay, it's just the way it is. And you, and you pray really hard that, you know, like this is just a phase. And like three years later, the dumb kid won't be so dumb. But sometimes they're dumb for a long, long time. 
And you look at the parenting and you go, okay, two kids, great. They love their mom and dad. Okay, that, that's the black sheep, dumb one, right? So please, please let, just, just, I want you to just think back to this. Let's, let's think, don't think legalistically here, okay? But we are looking for people who really can shepherd, protect, care, like fathers. And let me get these last couple here. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. That's really interesting. I've been thinking really hard about, uh, especially in these last two qualities, he'll be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He will like fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So uh, I want to emphasize this. Um, there are traps to leadership and power. And the traps actually come from the devil. And they often have to do with the perception of people. We're profoundly social beings. And when we fail leadership, and there are, there are traps into leadership, there, some of you, um, you know, some of you, you crave, you, you want to become the leader in your, in your organization. You're like, if I go up there, I'll have the power. I'll, everybody will esteem me. I'll make a lot more money. But you should be careful about that. And I'm not even talking about the church. Because if you get power and authority before you're ready, um, it could be a trap. Because when you fail, when you fail that role in front of everybody, you know what's going to happen? Especially now, they will cancel you. <laughs> They'll condemn you. Oh, and the devil loves that. They love taking a person, he loves taking a person who's not ready and destroying you from the inside. So out of love for, you know, your, your brothers, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be too quick to raise them up into authority and power. It's a person with a steadiness. And here I want to emphasize this. Profoundly, it's about tested humility. I think this is what we're talking about here. It's humility that's been tested over time. If a person just became a Christian recently and they're very gifted, maybe they could talk really well, they're really, really smart, they know the Bible really well, or they chop up and, and then everybody goes, oh, you know, we want this person's got a lot of talent, let's raise them up. But um, it says here that they could be puffed up with conceit. And this is really one of the biggest traps of the devil. The world regularly underestimates, and I, and I have to say the church regularly underestimates this trap. Because we want to see talent. We want to see, quote, unquote, righteousness. But righteousness of man without God, you know what's always there? Puffed up with conceit. Puffed up with conceit. You give a person power, you give them authority, people will say, oh, you're so great. If a person doesn't have the righteousness from Christ, a righteousness of God, but their own righteousness, the power of our own righteousness, you know what's that you will fall into the trap of the devil, which is pride. And pride, oh, it'll get you. So over time, it's important that a person, it's actually, when, it, when a person's a young Christian, one of the most important things that they're, they're going to find out is they're never as good as they think they are. <laughs> they're, never, they're always a lot more sinful than they always think they are. And one of the first, most deepest ways they have to learn their sinfulness is that they got to find out that their righteousness is actually pretty bad. Actually, they deserve to go to hell, not for their sins. They do deserve to go to hell for their sins. But they deserve to go to hell for their righteousness. Because their righteousness is puffed up with conceit. 
actually filled with the devil's trap. And so when a man needs, he needs to walk with Jesus in the grace of the cross for some time, and then he learns the profound humility, oh, it's always Christ. It's always Christ. And then it also, he learns the humility of looking at other people that way too. So he sees something, he sees a bad quality in a person, and he just goes, oh, I don't like that person. Cut that person out. Let's judgment, judge them. I'm better than them. Let's kind of push them out of the church. No, 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 no. The humility to have the hope that they could change. See? And again, that kind of humility, it's a deep thing in the character. That's, that leads go back to all the other qualities. That will lead back to the outside of the world will see this person as, and look at them in a good way. Look, our world hates Jesus, the Bible, and, and honestly, the church. And so we can't expect them to always think well of our leaders, and regularly they won't think, won't think well of our leaders. But the world likes genuine righteousness that's really got sustained, proven humility. Oh, the world loves that. That's the kind of quality that we want, that even the outside world would say, you know what, I don't agree with what they believe about God or the Bible or whatever, but these people, I have to say, they're pretty good people. We really need people like this in our lives. Okay, let me close. We need to get to the table of the Lord. Um, I want to say this in closing. All of these are leadership qualities. And let me ask you this thing. This is what we're looking for in the most important organization on the planet, God's church. But don't you think that it would be nice if we had this, you know, in, you know, in the governor's office? in the mayor's office, in our police chief, in our president. And I'm not trying to make any kind of political point here, okay? I'm not being partisan in any, any way. Wouldn't it be nice if your manager had these qualities, if your vice president had these qualities, if your CEO had these qualities? Don't you wish your dad had these qualities? You know what we're talking about here? We're talking about a character, a character, a righteousness, which is from God. It's supernatural from God. That's what we're talking about. And a person can't have this until they have marinated in the gift of God through the gospel, through grace, through salvation, through his son Jesus. So let me say the gospel to you. We all think we're so wise. We all think we're good people. There's so many people just, I'm a good person. You know, wouldn't it be mean of God to like not accept me? But if you're really, really honest with yourself, if you're afraid that your own girlfriend won't accept you. <laughs> because if she really ever got to really, really know you, she'll see something really, really black and dark about you. So if that's the truth, why should God, who sees you absolutely inside out, and knows that even when you are being quote-unquote good, it's so filled with judgmentalism and, you know, like self-justification and puffed up with pride. But a person who finds out that I'm actually not anywhere near as good as I actually thought I was or wished I was knows that he needs a character and a righteousness which he does not have, which she does not have. And in the gospel, it is offered to you. It is the good news. That the Son of God became human so that we could be human like God. That the Son of God said, we can offer you a righteousness, a character. And that character comes from going into the world 
and suffering the pains of the world and bearing the pains and sinfulness and the self-righteousness and prides of the world and then being able to bear that and suffer that out of love and patience for other people, of humility for other people, because that's what the Son of God did. That's what the cross is. The cross is God's righteousness and character to come into a sin-sick and horrible, lying, wicked world filled with self-righteousness and then returning not self-righteousness with condemnation that we deserve, but instead giving us humility and sustained love and forgiveness which we do not deserve. What we need is people who has received that kind of love and mercy so deeply that they have grown in the righteousness of the cross through Jesus. And the more that we have those kinds of people, it won't only bless the church. We can have men and women who grow up inside the church who have the character and righteousness of the cross and they go out into the world and they will be better CEOs and they will be better principals and they will be better senators and they will be better governors. They don't become elders inside the church, but they become some of the best leaders of our society. And you know what? That's a gift of God through the gospel. So I hope this time that you listen to all these little strange things that we're talking about, <laughs> that you will see the profound super relevance of it. And you would long and pray for such leaders to be raised up. And that you would, through the mercy and grace of Jesus, that you would want that kind of character to come into your life, and you too can have it if you invite Jesus into your life and grow inside of his character, of the cross which goes out and defeats the wickedness of the world and our self-righteousness. Let's pray and go to the table of the Lord. Father, um, it is so good that we are going to receive what you have offered, the righteousness of your son's life through his death and resurrection, his death and suffering, the suffering of love which was more powerful than the power of the world. And help us to raise up people, raise up men, and so that our church would truly be your household, your family, and filled with a righteousness and character that our men and women and our children were chased after, and we would thrive under your gentleness, under your grace and mercy, that makes us truly, truly human, like you, Lord Jesus, like God. So make us that kind of people, and give us leaders like that, and make us a family like that, and lead us in these next couple weeks to have discernment, to take this very, very seriously, that you will set apart men to become holy men. And your holiness and the, com and the compelling power of your glory, of your death and resurrection, Lord Jesus, which gives us a new kind of righteousness which could defeat the cynical, angry, judgmental legalisms of the world. That is what we can have in our church and for our city. So now as we go to your table, help us to consider our character now and help us to have great awe and gladness that you would be a forgiving God, a merciful God, and offer us something much better than our righteousness and character, your character, Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.